Guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy. It's always fascinating to hear an entrepreneur's journey and uh, what type of business they decide to set up and why and what their background is. And often people who, you know, have already had a career, you know, try and find something that's meaningful for them. And the business, it mightn't have started off to become a purely commercial initiative. It's more about giving back to the community or something they're passionate about. And um, it ends up being viable uh, as an entity as well. And uh, one such guest on today, uh, very much in the volunteering space, so it adds a bit of sort of depth and variety to the Buy Works Business Podcast interviews. Uh, this is a, definitely a different type of uh, a company, Camps International, uh, but I think listening you'll understand a lot of the sort of company uh, company topics that we go through, such as market entry, such as target audience, this company works with schools, and the types of projects and the types of countries that they work in. Stuart, the CEO, started off by describing it as a travel company, but as you see and as you listen, there's so much that goes in with that, and there's so much more uh, that comes international as, as well. So enjoy the conversation. I wanted a business that did well and, and made an impact, operated well as a business, I understood travel. So the very sort of condensed version was that we decided that the only way we could achieve that was to live in the community and build alongside the community. So we started with a very small camp in Kenya, um, which actually we kept that camp for over a decade, but we we buy or lease a piece of land off the local community, um, build a camp in the local style with the locals, but only once we've agreed a long-term sustainable development plan for community development, wildlife, and environmental conservation. Uh, and once that camp is built local style, um, we then staff it with locals, train the locals to work as project leaders, housekeeping, security, um, camp management, the whole thing is locally staffed, locally resourced, locally built. Uh, and then school groups come through and engage in the various projects that we've committed to on that on that sort of long-term sustainable plan. Yeah, and so we started with that. And over the years, we've grown from Kenya, Tanzania. Uh, we then went to Borneo, Cambodia, uh, and Latin America. So in order was Ecuador, Peru, and Costa Rica. Oh, wow. Uh, and so that's the main places you're in at the moment. So essentially, it's a few things in one. Camps International, as you described, a social enterprise based around travel and, and volunteering as well. Um, was that the sort of mission that you set out with from the start? Uh, and how has it sort of evolved over the years other than territories? What sort of organization is it today in a post-pandemic world? Yeah, look, I, I think if I'm really honest about myself, I, I didn't come at it whilst it's a commercial operation, I didn't come at it with a commercial mindset. Um, my history, my background being, I had eight years as an army officer. So you wake up every day and you do things, you're not financially driven in your motivations. Um, obviously I've, I've had to learn that quite quickly um, running a business, but 
the whole the whole uh, ethos and purpose of the business was about creating impact and it's something we now call the camps effect where we want our business to have an equal impact on the planet and on our guests our clients which are exclusively schools so we want to be making a solid impact to the host environments that, that we work with but equally you know a, a massive impact to the life skills and the benefits of the young people that are on it um, but it's it look it grew it's grown very well over the years we you know we started with 53 kids in our first year in one small camp um, we ended up with over 20 camps um, and you know on average around 6,000 volunteers a year uh, pre-pandemic pandemic wasn't quite so kind to us as you can imagine yeah definitely um and so it, it sounds like you know with being a company that could be many different companies it could be a charity mm -hmm. it could be a, a booking engine yeah. it could be a volunteering group it sounds like by focusing on the areas that you are uh with uh leaving something sustainable and and uh, impactful afterwards but also focusing on schools it kind of narrows down uh, to something that you can be good at and are this uh, is it just schools you said so if I'm in university I, I can't go and volunteer with Camps International uh, you used to be able to um, so we ran for many years um, gap year programs which was 18 plus but what happened was the schools really overtook everything they became more consuming for us Mm. Um, back to your point you make about this sort of uh, the, the narrowing down, you know, travel's an enormous industry um, and we're in a niche sector which is educational travel, um, educational volunteering, experiential travel. And then what we've done is we've narrowed it down even further into specifically schools. And once you once you engage with that that market and that group of um, that group of clients, you become you have to stay niche because everyone that comes on a trip with us now is a minor they're under 18 years old um in in the eyes of the law in most places we operate i'm local apprentice i have the same responsibilities as ceo as, as their parents mm. um so everything you deliver has to be geared around the delivery of first and foremost safe experiences and with it all of the all of the trappings that you need to, to manage young people for you know our, our, our main trips are a month long out of the UAE a week but out of the UK over 3,000 kids a year normally is, is a 28-day experience that are with us wow so it's very niche and how do you go about that and you know you've obviously been doing it for a few years but how do you ensure safety in some of the locations that you go to uh, what are what's some of the systems that you have in place and what's your support team like that kind of work with you on this no. It, well, it's the, the phrase we use is you, to, to manage risk uh, and to control risk as best you can. You really need to own the content, and by that I mean you're not you're not you, you limit the number of third parties you're working with. So, camps is uh, to use a horrible phrase, you know, vertically integrated in the sense that we have we sell um, we have sales teams and operations teams in the UK the UAE in Australia, but we own uh, and operate as inbound tour operators in all our locations. And we have a British director. So in terms of the, the infrastructure, there's a British director in each territory, Latin America, Africa, Asia. 
uh, and they then have their own in-country teams uh, that are permanently staffed. So pre-pandemic, we went in with 171 staff um, globally, a lot of which, you know, excluding circa 60 in the in the sales territories, um, the remainder over over 110 were were based locally, and their local indigenous communities, local people speaking the local language, working alongside the locals, because it's that relationship we have with the communities that we build our camps with that really provides us with the, the most security uh, and the most safety on the ground. And you would provide the, the school kids going from the UK for a month, uh, you know, for peace of mind for the parents, the travel logistics, transport, accommodation, uh, agenda, criteria and content is all provided for end-to-end by Camps International. Yeah, look, it, it's actually a little bit more than that um, because the lead time for most trips out of the, out of the UAE, you'd be looking at t- typically on an average four to six months lead time from us going into the schools, students actually traveling can be longer. Out of the UK, it's typically a year and a half. Um, so you've got a whole pre-departure support piece going on in terms of preparing those young people. And we also introduced a new program called Real World Studies, which was We'd started it before the pandemic, and then we really added some juice to it over the, over the two years of COVID. Uh, and Real World Studies connects the students in the classroom, whether they travel with us or not, with our live projects on the ground. So if we're working with a women's group in Kenya um, on a various number of initiatives, can be anything from schooling, health, education, um, training, we can. We've had teachers actually produce curriculum-relevant uh, content, which ticks off a lot of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And, the, and kids can sit in the classroom and connect literally with that women's group in Kenya and study a live project as part of their classroom studies. Mm. So there's a lot of support in that respect. And then, if you take what you get from a normal holiday and then beef it up massively, because we're dealing with the teachers, the students and the parents as the gatekeepers really to, to these experiences and they all have different things that they they need to satisfy it's fascinating so you actually it's not just you know uh not to be disingenuous but it's not just the labor part mm. you're actually looking at it from allowing kids to understand project management and you know and that goes back to having something that will last after they finish the project and things like that yeah i mean there's there's quite often sort of understandably sort of arguments put forth about you know, if you're taking kids into Cambodia to, to build water wells, you, are you not taking away local jobs? Um, we're not in the sense that the students become the mechanism to, the, to whatever impact we're making. Wherever we're working, we're employing masons, carpenters, builders. It's all local expertise that's actually managing and delivering those projects. The the, the act of a young person getting up in the morning, getting a project brief, grabbing a wheelbarrow, grabbing a shovel, going out with their mates, um, with an expedition leader, with accompanying school staff and with our project guides and working on projects. That's just the mechanism to deliver in the field, hands-on key life skills. That's how they learn. That's how they, you know, when we talk about learning outside the classroom, it's about physically getting stuck in you know, and digging the foundations of school or putting a roof on a school or whatever, whatever it is you're doing on one of our projects. 
the actual act is just the, is the mechanism. It's the learning outcomes um, come from the experience of being engaged with it. Mm. And commercially, how does it work? Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, especially say when I grew up in Ireland and when I would hear of these projects and I went on a trip once to Nepal and then to Kenya and sometimes, mm. you know, the charity would be led, led by the individual. They would raise funds and they would... Uh, you know, uh, you know, use online platforms, and they would uh, get funds together and go and do a specific uh, trip or project. Uh, but with the schools' relationship, is it that you have a long-term relationship with the schools that they have a verified partner in in Camps International, and then uh, does the funding come from the schools, or does it come from the individual students as well? Um, the funding comes so two elements to this. I'll break down to how the student raises their funds and also how um, how we fund our activities. It's the sense that every, for me, the business has to be sustainable. Um, we can't be relying on grants. We have a foundation that sits alongside our business because mm. we do get donations and we have a 100% guarantee on that. So the company underwrites every penny of the foundation. Someone donates a dollar, a dollar nice. goes 100% into projects. But um, the the business model, the price that it, that a, a parent or a student pays to come on a trip, also has ensures that we can deliver all of the projects that we need to deliver. Um, so, from the UK, it's a very different environment. A lot of the UK students over their year and a half journey will fundraise most, if not all, of their expedition funds. So they'll get jobs, they'll go out, they'll fundraise, and they'll they'll earn their place on the trip. Um, out of the UAE, it's a small, it's a lower price point, it's a shorter period, there's not the ability for, for young people to do that. Um, but every trip has an element allocated specifically to project funds. But on average, over 40% of the monies that we get in as a business are, are being recycled back into um, the local economy by virtue of the fact we build staff um, and purchase locally through our camps. Mm. Okay, understood. And speaking specifically on the UAE, is it with the schools here that that arrangement is that it's a one-week trip? And is there a reason why it's a one-week trip versus a month? Uh, yes. Um, so th the reason it's a one-week and, and not a month is the, the UK model is very much about summer trips. So it happens typically outside of the, outside of the, um, the term. Uh, and you've got, you know, in the UK, it's everyone's, it's a, it's one place, one seasonality, one common culture, and they go away for a month in July and August. So we have this big sort of peak around July and August. We tried that in the UAE, but, um, but you'll understand it well by virtue of, you know, you've got multiple cultures, multiple, a lot of people just, you know, disappear out of the heat over July and August. And, um, so the trips are typically running during term time or in those short holidays, the half terms and the Easter's. Uh, and it's, it, it's a younger demographic as well in, in the UAE. So UK, they're typically booking at 14, 15, traveling at 16, 17. In the UAE, they're going at a, at a younger age, typically 13, 14, 15 years old. But it's all channeled through the schools. So we present to the schools, the schools invite us in, we then prevent the students and parents, and everything is is hubbed through those schools. Uh, and is the benefit sort of similar, or 
you know, and I think you mentioned as well the sort of that they can be involved or see the project progress before and after. So even though they might only experience it uh, in person for yeah. a week, that they can still be involved as well. So do you think that the that what's being what you're doing through the UAE is as effective? I think it is, um, especially that age range. You know, if you're when you're engaging the, in these these experiences. You know, it's quite a lot to take in. If it's about you step out of Dubai and, you know, 12 hours later, you're sitting in over a million acres of wildlife migratory corridor um, on the side of a hill in one of our camps looking out over over Africa, surrounded by nothing but African communities. That's quite a, quite a big leap when you're 13, 14 years old. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's a lot to take in. And those extra few years sort of, before you bleed into something like a one month, um, are, I think are important and needed. But the impact is extraordinary. Um, the impact on not just educational, but I think on, on the mental health of young people. Mm. I've got a 19-year-old and a 15-year-old, and they've spent their lives you know, running around camps with me. The company's 20 years old. Right. Um, and I think having that exposure to um, people who live very different frankly, less privileged existences, but there's so much common ground. And, and for these young people to go and engage with that, see it, touch it, and understand it, and, and be part of it, for, even just for a few days to a week. Um, young people learn a lot of life skills, and they learn a lot about themselves on these experiences. Uh, and I think it's really a central part of the development of young people um, to have these experiences. Interesting. And you see the benefits. And, and is it, you know, what's the uptake like in the schools uh, with, in the UAE or in Dubai with Campus International? Mm. How many schools do you work with and how is that relationship developing? Yeah, no, it, it, it's been amazing. I mean, we've been, we've been in the UAE for over 10 years now. Um, but I, I don't realize we're making these sort of statements, but we're comfortably the market leader in that respect. We, we managed to travel for a lot of the the large school groups out here we, we work for both school groups and individual schools hmm. um so um on the on the international school front most schools will either be traveling with us or will have traveled with us and there's a bit of a cycle in this there's there's some other good good organizations out there in the industry um uh, and we're kind of part of a an educational travel ecosystem if you like yeah because what you want is you want young people engaging on local residential trips, you know, doing one night, two night, three night experiences in the desert. Um, starting to starting to get that experience of outdoor learning locally within Russell Khaimah, Sharjah, Dubai, Abu Dhabi. You know, having those experiences mm. locally, preparing them. It doesn't have to be volunteering, but you know, skiing, uh, language tours, sports tours, anything that gets you a little bit out of your comfort zone. Starting to learn some some. Um, some, some dependence on yourself, build your self-esteem. Your, your, you, you want, we want young people to come back off of our trips with a benchmark of achievement for what they've done that is undeniably, undeniably the result of their efforts mm. and, and, and taking those sort of steps and understand that they can aim high mm. you know, and they can achieve well. So, yeah, no, it's it's um we're, we're working with most of the schools in the, in the UE now. 
um, the ones that will have us. We, we bang down the doors daily. <laughs> Brilliant. And, you know, you lived here, you know the UAE well and the leadership here and what, what, what has been done over the years, especially in humanitarian causes and support around mm. the world. I think the UAE, you know, if you look at the stats, they punch above their weight with per capita donations for all humanitarian crises and, and ongoing. And of course, Dubai Cares does a lot of work, I'm sure in similar territories that you're in as well. What, what's the sort of, you know, uh, how have you integrated within the sort of wider sort of volunteering uh, direction within the UAE? Yeah, the, the quick and honest answer to that is within the UAE, not a great amount. Um, by virtue of the way our, our model works. You know, if, if you book with camps, it's a, it's a self-contained um, volunteering model, if you like, in, in that your funds are flying you there, ensuring you providing all the content, the food, your accommodation, your transport, and also your volunteering experience and the project funds that are needed in there. Mm. So well, everything we do has been outbound, but I think we are we're benefiting from the, the, the culture and the growing culture uh, that the UAE has for supporting volunteering. Um, and I say that because when we go in, people understand it, teachers understand it, parents understand it, students get it. Um, we're not going in and seeing it as something unusual because I think it's part of the, part of the narrative of everyone's, everyone's lives increasingly now. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think um, you described it well, Stuart, the growing uh, approach mm. and attitude towards volunteering. And I guess it's, you know, culturally, charities are set up differently in the UAE and, the, you know, and it's a younger country and there's uh, also a mix of different nationalities. So people come from different approaches to yeah. uh, to giving back and participating, but it's definitely growing here. You know, we see uh, Any time on, on Love in Dubai when posts go up, the amount of queries of, of the society and the community asking how can they get involved, how can they volunteer. Uh, so, yeah, I definitely echo that. And do, do you see then fresh ideas coming out of the schools and the kids and the parents with your interaction within the UAE as well that might help shape sort of new initiatives that CAMS does? Absolutely. I mean, we... What, what, we're the kind of business that it's hard to, to have a superficial, you're not going to have just a holiday with us. You don't mm. come with us to kick back on the beach. Um, you're coming to get stuck in and engage with something really meaningful. And by virtue of that, it, it fires people off. It gets people thinking. So we have schools that will uh, introduce additional initiatives to whatever we're bringing to the table. We've had schools that have come up with um, solar energy um, initiatives where the students have arrived and they've actually brought with them their own um, their own project initiatives which they implement. Um, we have that's why we set up the foundation, um, which we don't use so much out of out of the Middle East for, for various reasons. But the you know we found that once people engage with our projects, they want to continue to engage because when you start something, it comes under this sort of banner of sustainability. You don't want it to be tokenistic. You want to see that the, the, what, whatever efforts you put in have continued to go and benefit the community or the wildlife that you've, you've, you've worked with. Um, and anyway, we do, that's where real world studies helps because it means that people can continue to see what's going on while they're back, back in their classroom. But also that's typically why schools repeat with us 
Um, so we do have schools that will be coming back to us where they've maybe introduced their own initiative and they want to revisit that year on year and ensure that what they're doing is sustained. Interesting. And you mentioned sustainability and, you know, you work with environmental projects, obviously kind of a buzz acronym at the moment is ESG. Uh, how do you, how is the sort of, you know, there's lots of incentives in different countries around ESG. There's lots of talk about it within, you know, previously it was social corporate governance or CSR and, and things like that. Has has the sort of movement towards uh, these type of social impact companies that are still commercial, but they've got more of a purpose, has that sort of met halfway with, with the direction you've been taking your company? Yeah, look, it, we're not in anywhere. I, I'm, I'm just sort of sitting here racking my brains thinking if there's a, in the last 20 years, if there's any destination where the, the, the host country has actually contributed to what we do, and no, not really. Um, it, typically, the, one of the reasons we're there is we will have located ourselves in a place where there isn't that support, mm. you know, where there isn't that impact. Um, you do see some good stuff going on out there. There's some increasing a lot, a lot more going on in terms of um, uh, you know interesting initiatives on carbon, on water. Um, we do hook up with other um, NGOs for. So, as in not non-commercial, but but people involved in the kind of project areas we are. So we work with anti-poaching patrols for our, for our wildlife conservation. We work with um, uh, an organisation called Reefolution for our reef conservation in Kenya. Um, World Wildlife Foundation. We work with various carbon offset projects. So there's some good stuff going out there. And so we're typically not working with governments, but we are working with NGOs that we. You know, we do our due diligence on them. There's good synergy between our projects and our volunteer base coming through. Yeah. So some of the initiatives, like you said, uh, that are bigger than you mm -hmm. might be able to do do with yourselves, yeah. uh, that you partner with the right entity. And what? So how have the you know how have the two you know the two hundred uh, projects that you've been involved in? How have the breakdown of those changed over the years? Uh, does it depend on the location or on the need? It, it, it does depend on the location and the need. Um, and we've learned some quite harsh lessons over the years because sometimes you engage with something which on the face of it looks like a complete no-brainer, something that's going to be of obvious benefit and that you can make an impact with. The problem is until you've, until you've been there and you've seen the execution of the project and actually the outcomes and the benefits of the people who rely on whatever it is you, you signed up to, you're not entirely sure whether or not it's going to work. Um, and we've had, there are some areas that we, we simply don't get involved with because we don't feel that we can provide a sustainable solution. Uh, orphanages is a good example. Mm. Um, you know, we, we got involved quite heavily in the early days in, in helping with the infrastructure with, with orphanages, but we found actually the bigger and better we made the orphanage, the more orphans we attracted and not all were orphans. And then we were not in a position to actually provide a, a sustainable um, program for, you know, what happens afterwards. Wow. You know, how do you place these young people into their education and to work and back into their communities? Wow. So we, we adapted that into a very different program now of, of supporting the communities from, from which those young people come from and giving the communities that, 
um, those orphans uh, are, find themselves in, give them the the means and the infrastructure, housing, livestock, um, jobs, income generating projects to enable them to look after their own. So we've had a lot of projects over the years, but it typically it breaks down between um, education, healthcare, um, regeneration of, of the environment, uh, both marine and terrestrial, and, and wildlife conservation. Uh, and within that, you've got all these sort of topics of, of water, tree planting. The pandemic was, was brutal for us. We lost over a million project towers. Um, so it feels really good to be back out there again with our students, you know, take, picking back up on these projects. Fascinating. There's a few things there, but yeah, let's t touch on the pandemic for a moment. Uh, you mentioned mm. it earlier and, you know, we're almost taken for granted that it's almost back to normal now, but um, how sort of uh, existential was that for you as a entity? You know, how, how difficult was it back in say March, 2020? Well, put it this way, I had a beard last night that was exclusively grey and I decided to shave it off for this, uh, for this uh, <laughs> interview. <laughs> so amazing how quickly the hair can change colour over two years. Um, it, it was unthinkably brutal. I think if someone had slid a piece of paper across the table to me back in February 2020 and said, you know, this is what it's going to look like, um, you know, I might have just... Uh, run, run for cover but we, we got through it we got through it because a lot of schools chose to collaborate with us um, we had 5,800 students booked um, you know we're talking revenues undeliverable revenues over three years of uh, you know over 70 million dollars worth of experiences that zeroed out in a matter of months um, and by virtue of how our booking cycles work, we had you know, a lot of students booked for 2020 and 2021. And that sort of creeping nature of, of the COVID um, in terms of not knowing what was going to be open when or when, when restrictions would be released, et cetera, meant that you know, it was literally a day by day. And, and we got through because some schools chose to defer and we've been delivering those trips this year. Um, others were, some were able to to cancel themselves and, and claim on their insurance when they wanted to cancel much earlier. And we refunded millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of, uh, of trips. Um, our staffing went down to circa 90, but f through, you know, retainers and innovation and a bit of furlough here, there and everywhere, we, we managed to keep on and we've, we're now re-employing a, a lot of those staff. Uh, so we're back at sort of 130 odd staff again now, which is great. So. We're, we're trading out of that hole with an amazing take-up. UAE, I'm touching a piece of wood right now, UAE looks to this coming year probably be our biggest year ever, including pre-pandemic. Mm. Um, the UK is now coming back strong. Australia is starting to stick its head above the, um, above the bushes, looks like they're coming. So mm -hmm. it's recovering, but we have to recover in line with academic calendars. So we don't quite have that instant bounce back that mainstream travel would have. It's not normal again fully, but at least, you know, it is great that the mm. pandemic didn't sort of kill off, you know, social impact companies like yourself and that you were able to survive. Right. So it's good to hear. Um, yeah. And, and of course, like even the schools, you know, it's like this summer, there was so much travel bounce back, but the airports weren't able to cope with it. 
And, you know, it's like when schools go back to normal, they want their ecosystem, they want their partners to be there. You know, when they send their kids to these destinations, they need that same, they need what they expected before. So it's important that you survived and thrived. Yeah, and it's also that it's not easy delivering school travel. Mm. Yeah, back to that point I made earlier, you're not just organizing, you know, transport and accommodation in a hotel. If you put young people into a hotel, you're looking at a floor for girls, you're looking at a floor for boys, you're looking at accommodation for teachers that is interspersed between the rooms, um, that it's situated in the right area. Your transport needs to be at day, no night driving for road traffic accident management. It's, it's the granular nature of delivering trips for young people in a safe way um, every single minute of the day down to, you know, nut allergies, uh, EpiPens for bee stings, the availability of these things, everything, management of mental health issues for young people, the support systems, just sort of restarting all that. We, we retained our capacity, we retained our staff in the main, that, that sort of core skill set. But it's not something you can turn back on super fast. And I have great empathy for airports trying to, you know, get back up to their previous levels from a standing start. Not easy. Yeah, fascinating. And just touching again, Stuart, on what you mentioned earlier about the the orphanages and, and things like that. I think that's a great insight. Um, and it goes back to the sort of bigger question. And you alluded to it with, you know, the comments about, you know, replacing local jobs is, you know, what's the right way to do this? What's, what's the right way to, uh, to provide something of value to school children in the countries that you're providing for, but also providing in a local community? If you were starting today, uh, you know, what would that sort of plan be like? Uh, you know, what do you think is the best way to sort of, uh, to build something or to create an, an impact in, in, a, in a third world country? I think you have to reverse engineer your thinking from what the real outcome needs to be and make sure that you commit to it in a, in a ruthless manner. Um, in, and what I mean by that is, let me give you an example. It's very easy to make yourself feel good. You can throw relatively small amounts of money in the big scheme of things and you can put together a classroom with a nice blackboard and some good desks and make something that looks and feels significantly better than what exists and walk away and say, job done. But if you're dealing with a school whose annual budget, and I was standing in one 10 days ago in Kenya, whose annual budget for the school uh, for best part of a thousand students is circa $2,000 mm. books, food, uh, maintenance, repairs, maintenance of the water tanks. Um, you know, you're talking a long list here and the parents can't afford to con contribute. It's going to fall apart. And so to reverse engineer, you want to say, well, if, I'm, if we're going to engage with this, we need to be able to sustain it. So we need a model that can do that. But we also want the young people that go through that, that classroom to, to go on to higher education and to get better qualifications and get better jobs and higher paying salaries that in turn you know comes back and cycles back into that community so if your model and for us it means that we don't look to expand 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 we're not looking for new locations we're not looking for additional communities now 
what we're looking to do is make sure that we can put as many young people and students through our existing camps and our existing projects to create the maximum impact. But at the end of the day, it's got to really start with the outcome. There's no point in us building a classroom if we can't maintain that classroom over, over years and years and that the young people who come out the other side of it aren't getting better jobs. And why do you... So th- I, yeah. Sorry. Uh, so, and why do you think that this system that, that you, you have in place is better than a local system, than better than a local charity or local government investment, if that money was there? I don't think it is better than all. I think some are excellent. Um, I think where we're better than those that I see that fail is the ones I see fail are where the funding has been made available through whatever means. Um, the infrastructure has been put in place, sometimes well, sometimes badly, and then it stops. And in every location that we operate, I'd be able to walk you to a smart looking building or an empty water tank that's you know now in disrepair or uh, any variety of infrastructure projects that have attracted the funding, had the money put into them, been put in place, but not had a sustainable mechanism to keep them going. Hmm. And what CAMPS does, I think the differentiation, I think is what you're asking, is, is the differentiation is what CAMPS does is we have students uh, and our own teams living in that community because we have a camp in that community and, and working through those projects, not 360 days a year, 65 days a year, but you know, for a large part of the year. Mm. Um, we're on the ground looking after it. Interesting. And that's where the difference comes in. Fair enough. And is, does that, um, do factors like that decide on uh, destinations for you uh, in terms of, you know, obviously you're not going somewhere because people want to travel there. You want to, you're going somewhere means you're going to stay there for the long term, uh, not sort of in and out on, on flights and things like that. Is that, is that a factor of sort of where you go next? And I think you mentioned, you correct me if but six or seven places where you're based permanently. Um, and are you, you know, now with sort of a more of a roadmap, are there new countries and places that you would look at and what are the factors of going there? I think it's going to be a few years before we go any further afield for our own owner-operated experiences. Mm. You know, we have a brand called Adventures by Camps that we operate exclusively out of the UAE for those schools that are. They also they also sometimes want to run trips which are less volunteer-based, so Great Wall of China or Iceland or so. We we work with partners there, but for our own stuff, um, you know, we lost we lost a lot of project impact over those COVID years, uh, and we've got quite a bit of catch-up to do. Uh, and so the schools that are coming in now are, are re-engaging with projects that, you know, we've never been out for the, the quick fix on this. You know, over the next two years, we're going to reinvest and re-engage in our existing destinations. But the, the checklist of why you go somewhere is quite extensive for us because we have one checklist, which is about impact, back to the camps effect. You know, what's the impact we can make on the planet? Um, and can we satisfy that criteria if it's in Costa Rica, great. And the, the other side of the equation on the camps effect is that the young person that travels with us, can we deliver a safe trip? And can we ensure that we have, we deliver impact to them and their life skills and their personal development and their growth? 
mm. and their experience and their mental health. So it's quite interesting when you look at a map and you start to pin it down, it narrows you down. And we've ended up, we call it the Tropic of Camps. It's kind of this equatorial band mm. of our locations. It seems to work well for us. Are there any, and you know the region well, and obviously Kenya isn't too far away relatively. Um, are there any other uh, countries that you think this could work in within the Middle East and North Africa. Obviously, there's humanitarian crisis going on in Yemen, but are there, and you know, what about uh, Sudan or, or South Sudan? Or are there any other countries that you think you it could work? Not that you would go there, but it could work mm-hmm. there. Um, yes, but I, but not for young people. Yeah, um, I think back to this sort of this criteria. You, if you look at one side of the checklist, that sort of impact, mm. that impact checklist you end up with a very long list of countries. You just mentioned a few there, you know, Yemen, Sudan, Somalia. You know, there's, there's all these places that there's, there's no shortage of finding places you can make a difference. But the minute you bring that second checklist into play and say, can I take a 14, 15, 16-year-old there safely? Um, and the answer is, in any way, no, then it doesn't. It doesn't make it pass, you know, first muster. So there's some, you know, places like Morocco, we run trips there. Um, there are places where there's decent infrastructure, good systems, good airports, good hospital infrastructure we're looking for, good medical, um, you know, on-the-ground embassies, uh, accessibility roads, decent vehicles. You know, our highest area of risk would be would be roads for sure. Um, so... Right now in the Middle East, I, there's probably nowhere I would, I would launch into with camps, hmm. um, and f- specifically for those reasons, just I, I wouldn't yet be able to satisfy myself that at scale, I'm not talking about the odd ad hoc trip, that at scale we could, you know, we could I'd sleep while the grey hairs would be increasing. Hmm. I've got enough. <laughs> yeah, fair <laughs> enough. It's just, I think it's just interesting when you know. Some countries, I guess, people think of as the place where they go to build schools or to support, and mm. other countries they don't. And I was just wondering why are some countries never thought of? I guess, uh, but okay, yeah. yeah, but you know, but but I, I th- yeah. I, guess, no, I was going to say, I think I think that's where the role of the NGO comes in. Mm. You know, and you've got you know organisations like Medicine Sans Frontières. There are organisations out there that have a much more robust infrastructure and they're not, their model is different. They're not hosting clients and they're not hosting young people. Yeah. So I think, I think there is an industry out there sort of delivering on that, but it doesn't, it doesn't fall into our territory. And could you do it as well, Stuart, in, you know, in countries that aren't necessarily as impoverished, but you could still create the camps experience. Like you could still do Mm. something environmental in, in Egypt or in Saudi Arabia or even in you know one of the, yeah Saudi or one of the Gulf countries can can you create those experiences like you mentioned people getting used to it in Rasa Kaima and things like that mm. yeah look, look we're we're working on a project which you know I'm I'm signed up on on the secrets act to the hilt but we're working <laughs> on a project sort of fairly fairly locally which could um, within the UAE that could be very exciting blending. Um, you know, the outdoor learning piece with uh, heritage, you know, as in UAE heritage. Um, and, and I think absolutely, and it's something we're looking at um, because I'd like to 
I'd like to have an involvement locally um, in delivering our kind of experiences, but very much with the UAE focus. Hmm. Um, so, no, for sure. Um, and then we're in terms of just environmental stuff, we've been looking at the Azores recently, um, just off the coast where I am now. Nice. Uh, and possibly a location which is purely environmental focused um, and just has that signature. So, yeah, no, absolutely. Interesting. And, you know, we're about to finish up a final question, but listening to you as well, we started off talking about, you know, being a travel and a social impact company, but there's such an educational element to this. Do you, know, do you envisage the future where, you know, even during the pandemic, you were doing more sort of virtual education pieces? Do you, do you see a, another sort of entity or department where you are becoming more of an educational company? Yeah, we've actually started to look at whether or not we should be registering an element of our business as a school, mm. um, as an extension, because we're, we're increasing, you know, back in the day, it was all about life skills. And we were working, it was our focus on sort of teamwork and leadership and self-esteem and all these, all this sort of good stuff that you get from being outside the, outside the class. But we've recently blended the curriculum, um, UN Sustainable Development Goals, you know, through our, through our real-world studies, you know, we, we've increasingly brought that into play in the experiences that young people have. And I was, I was sitting teaching with, uh, talking with a, a number of teachers yesterday, and they said, You're, we're starting to see you and fundamentally treat you as an extension to the classroom, extension mm-hmm. to our school. So, um, yeah, I, I actually think there could be real legs in camps having an element of the business, which is actually a registered school. And we've already been looking at talking to a couple of really progressive, innovative, uh, exciting uh, educators um, to, to how we might be able to do that. Fascinating. Yeah, it'd be good to watch mm-hmm. and see. Well, thank you for sharing uh, all the story and all the journey so far today. And congratulations on what you've done. Um, if, you're, if, if I'm a parent and I'm listening to this and my kids are in the UAE, uh, how do they sort of uh, get involved? Is it through the school or can they contact you directly? Um, they can contact us directly, um, websites up there, etc. And we can always sort of double check and cross examine whether they're at a school that we're already working with or one that we're, you know, hammering down the door on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's predominantly through the school. The more, the more parents are going out and ask their school to get involved with us, the better. Very much would be amazing. Amazing. Well, and thank you very much, Stuart, this morning for coming on the show. Uh, we'll follow Camps International with more interest and more knowledge now in the future. Thank you. Richard, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Stuart and hearing all about Camps International. It definitely gives you know, listening to that offering, it gives you a more of a perspective of what type of independent entities are in the UAE and how they're working with schools as well. Uh, but also, you know, uh, Stuart's choice of uh, where to position himself and where to position the company is fascinating, sort of with that travel and uh, geography uh, view of the world in mind as well. Uh, so yeah, thanks for listening. You can, if you were listening on any of the podcast channels, uh, please do like, subscribe, and share. Uh, if you're watching on Smashy, we're now streaming this exclusively 
on smashy.tv so it'll be on the website domain but also be on iOS and Android mobile apps and then any of the smart TV apps as well including Apple TV, Sony TV etc with uh, Samsung to come soon. Uh, I'd like to thank our producers Shahir and uh, Ali for putting together the show uh, and uh, one other shout out about Smashy is that we've recently started broadcasting local sports in the UAE. We started off with a volleyball tournament at Al Ain this week uh, and we'll be doing futsal at the weekend as well. So for this season 2022-2023 we'll have futsal, volleyball and handball uh, all exclusively live on Smashy TV. Uh, so please do check it out. Uh, let us know what sports you like and what sports you'd like to see in the future and continue watching Smashy. Thank you.